Well, I got a few left to go through Second Peter with me. You know what? I don't care where they are as long as they're in the building. Amen? How many of you are ready to go through Second Peter tonight? We're going to look at the sinister sin of Balaam. And may or may not have ever heard this, but this is a great, great illustration on the part of Simon Peter. But I want to pray first. Uh, you know, people, I talk to a lot of people about, uh, you know, different churches and whatnot. And I'm, I'm for churches. I love churches and pastors. And we want all of them to knock the walls down and really reach their community. But people wonder why, you know, why do we take Wednesday nights to go through whole books? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and the Bible says that God gave every word of Scripture. Every word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. If anybody ought to know the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, it ought to be the church. We ought to know it. The more you know the Bible, the less likely you are ever to be deceived. And that's a fact. So let's stand together and pray over this tonight, part 5, 2 Peter. We're going to finish chapter 2 and talk about the sinister sin of Mr. Balaam. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the Word. We need the Word, Lord. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Every word. And Lord, this is your Word by your Apostle, Simon Peter. Now, Lord, speak to us. Warn us. Exhort us. Build us up in the faith. Renew our minds so we think like you, View the world like you, walk like you, talk like you, and emulate you everywhere in Jesus' name. Can you breathe a prayer? Speak to me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. All right, we're moving right along. We saw last time God's judgment on the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And boy, did that cause no small stir last Wednesday night. Y'all remember last Wednesday night? The tapes flew, and I can't wait for it to go on radio. Somebody asked me, where are you going to be when it's on radio? With this shack I've got up in the Ozarks? I'm going to be up there. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to be right here. Now, we looked at the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the deliverance of Abraham's nephew Lot, and it's a very... Uh, sobering story. Now next, Peter's going to renew his attack upon the apostates. Remember, many of the letters in the New Testament were written because immediately false teachers rose up among the people and taught false doctrine. And it was very, very bad, very dangerous. And nothing alarmed the apostles like that. And when we read this, as we go through this and we hear the word apostate, remember an apostate is somebody who has walked away from the truth that they knew. They've walked away from the truth. Now, when you hear of, and, and there are everywhere now, of cults or teachers who take away from the deity of Jesus, who he was, the work of Jesus, the efficacy of the blood, the cross, heaven, hell, when you see an attack, when you hear things like, well, there's, there's more than one way. There's not just one way to heaven. Or when you hear, well, he was a good man, but he certainly wasn't God. In Peter's day, people were going everywhere teaching all kinds of things, teaching that God never came in the flesh, that Jesus was not God in fleshly form, which is 
um, an apostate teaching. And all through the Bible we are warned to be careful of doctrinal, theological deception. Deception about God, who He is. Christ, who He is and was. The Holy Spirit. The need to be forgiven by the blood. Things like this are attacked in our day. And you know what? They always have been attacked. Now, Peter, as well as Paul, if you wanted just to pour acid on them, tell them that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. If you wanted to see red come up into their face in a righteous way, tell them that Jesus was not the Son of God or was not the answer for the sin of mankind or some other untruth about Jesus. Just tell them. And Paul would let you have it, and Peter is doing that in this letter here. So he's countering, not only countering false teaching, but he's revealing to us the nature, the character, the characteristics, the lifestyles of these false teachers. He's going to let them have it. And as we go over this, keep in mind, these same kind of people are alive and well today. What did Jesus say? Before I return again, there's going to be many false messiahs, many false teachers everywhere and increasing as my return approaches. So with that in mind, look what Peter said about these false teachers. But these, chapter 2, verse 12 of 2 Peter, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and they will utterly perish in their own corruption. Now these false teachers, Peter says, were driven by near or mere natural instinct, like an animal. They were a little better than animals in Peter's mind. And keep in mind, this is not just a mad apostle talking. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So when you see words used, these are words that the Holy Spirit used. Keep that in mind. Brute means without reason. The apostates, having abandoned divine revelation for human reasoning, end up abandoning sense and they abandon logic for downright stupidity. Every time you kick the Bible out, you're going to get stupid. professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. You can take the simplest person with a very average IQ and fill them with the Word of God and they've got way more wisdom than a raving genius who knows not God. It's one thing to be smart. It's another thing to be wise. There's a lot of people with high IQs do stupid things and die stupid deaths. High IQ doesn't mean you've got wisdom. Sometimes it just means you can be more obnoxious You've got a better ability to do it. But what happened is when our schools gave up divine revelation and cast the Word of God out, look at them now. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. Look at our schools now. You've got high school athletes graduating. High schoolers graduating can't write a complete sentence. Professing themselves to be wise and throwing out divine revelation saying we don't need it. And the Bible is from cover to cover divine revelation they ended up, these apostates, ended up stupid. They rail against things they don't understand, utterly ignorant of the fact that the unseen world exists. They rail at dignity. He's talking about unseen powers. They rail at them 
when they don't even believe that they're there. They don't even know what they're talking about. Multitudes in our day do the very same thing. They are mentally closed off to what God has revealed in His Word about demons, evil spirits, fallen angels, righteous angels, and so on. They're ignorant of it. And if you tell them that you believe there's angels out there or that there's demons, you are mocked and ridiculed. But Jesus taught us otherwise. Now Peter assures us that they will utterly perish in their own corruption. In the end, they fall victims to their own propaganda. You see, the deceivers are usually the most deceived. They fall victims to their own propaganda and they succumb to the consequences of their own corrupt lifestyles. Their belief system gets them in the end every time. Okay? And he, Peter goes on in verse 13 and says, They're going to receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with who? Now what Peter's doing is he's letting the Christian church have it a little bit here. He's saying, I want you to open your eyes and look who's eating with you, fellowshipping with you, and you're not discerning them. They have wormed their way into your presence. They're at your love feasts. And yet they are false teachers. They are apostates. And there they are among you. Now notice how the false teachers had wormed their way into the love feast of the Christians. They feast with you. And Peter went ahead and called them spots and blemishes. These two words point to the shame and the moral disgrace and the licentiousness of the false teachers. Spots and blemishes. How many of you would like to be called a blemish? Can I just naturalize this? A zit. Spots and zits they are among you. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. But shame, moral disgrace, licentiousness. Their tactic was to join the celebratory feast of the church, all the while carousing in their own deceptions. They thought it was a big joke to get in there with the Christians and eat with them, knowing that all the time behind their back they're undermining them, undermining their faith and teaching people other than what the apostles of Jesus had taught. Now, that little word there, carousing in their own deceptions, that phrase is describing a life of luxury. Carousing in their own deceptions, it's a description of a life of luxury. These apostates were apparently doing very well for themselves, financially, out of their own teaching. And that's the reason a lot of them were teaching what they were teaching. They're making money off the church. The church can be so gullible. The church can be so easily deceived. So often because we want to believe the best of people and because we're walking in a good, righteous lifestyle with God, we assume that other people are the same way. And that's how Christians so often get shocked and surprised when the mask is torn away from someone that was close to you and you realize, uh-oh, they are not who I thought they were. How did I miss it? You missed it because, because you're being a good person, walking good, walking righteously, that everyone feels the same way, but they don't. They don't. There's undermining, diabolical, destructive people that get into the church with the intent to corrupt it and destroy it. So he goes on. They were using their message 
to cheat the people out of their money. They were thoroughgoing hypocrites, eating with you, but they're really after your money. They're after what you've got. They're after your stuff. They don't care about you at all, but they're acting like they love you. And in our day, they can be on TV. They can be on the radio. I'm on the radio, but I'm not one of them. But they can be. I mean, there's people, they, there's people out there, fake divine healings. I'm just being honest with you. Have little earpieces in their ear, and they got somebody behind the scenes telling them who just came in in a wheelchair with what affliction, tell them their name. They tell them these things. They come in, they call them out, acting like it's a word of knowledge, and it's fakery. Now, the real thing is real, but there's also fake, fake people out there who want your money. And it's just a fact. And Peter knew this, and he's, he's saying, hey, y'all, put on your discernment cap. Now he goes on, and he's not flattering here. He's describing these people, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot stop sinning. They entice what kind of a soul? They entice unstable souls, and there's plenty of those, okay? Uh, people are just getting their feet wet in Christianity, just getting their toes in the water, just getting started, but they got all kinds of problems in their life. They haven't grown up in the faith, and those are the ones they target. Those are the ones the cults target. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, target them. Other cults target people, the unstable souls that don't know the Word of God. They are not grounded and rooted in the faith, and they're easily, easily swayed by smooth talk. Look at what he says. They have a heart that is trained in covetous practices. And they are cursed children. Well, I love the Word of God for its truthfulness. It is not a politically correct Bible. They could not look at a woman, these teachers, without lust. Couldn't look at a woman without lust. And they use their position as teachers, people of authority, to entice already unstable souls into moral sin. Happens all the time. We see it on TV all the time, in the news. Of course, the news loves it when it's a Christian church. And they don't mention a word if it's Islamic or some other religion. Hardly mention it. Christian church, they're on it. Because it's another scandal they can trumpet. But... Peter's making a difference. And I don't want you to get the idea that there's not the real thing. The devil is not creative. He copies God across the board. I'm going to show you sometime the, the similarities, the, the long list of similarities between Jesus Christ and Antichrist. It's amazing. The devil's a copycat. And all he's doing is he's sowing tares among the wheat here. There is the real wheat, the real thing. And he's sowing the tares among the wheat. Peter is identifying the tares that are among the real thing. So, here they are. They, 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 they're full of lust. They're after money. They're covetous. They're greedy. And they have a heart trained to spot a vulnerable soul and attack. The word for entice suggests catching by means of bait, and that's what they do. They bait you. Unstable means not set fast or not firmly fixed. These unstable souls are not, are not steadfast yet. They haven't, been, they haven't been taught. They haven't been in the Lord long enough. 
And so those are the ones they target. And boy, you can get a thousand people in a room and have two unstable souls, and one of these false teachers will home in on them, spot them, and target them. The cults do it all the time. They know immediately when they knock on your door and you open it whether or not you've got their number or they've got yours. By the way, you want some advice? Don't let them in. But I want to let them in and minister to them. You're not going to minister. Rarely you're going to reach them. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says shut the door on them. Why would you let them in? That's free. Now, the apostates set their traps for those people who are not rooted, grounded in the Word. Peter says they're cursed children. As Paul said, they are indeed children of wrath. You're either under wrath or you're under grace. You are, you are one of the two. You're under wrath or you're under grace. If you're saved by Jesus Christ and His blood, you're under grace. But if you haven't come to Him, you're under wrath. Jesus said that. Now, Peter once again looks back into the Old Testament for another illustration of, of apostasy. And he finds it in the story of Balaam. This Balaam guy is a trip. He's a trip. And, I, I, and I'm so glad the Word of God told us about him. We read about him in Numbers 22 through 24. If you want to read a great story, a, a biographical sketch of a kind of guy you don't want your kids to be like, read Numbers 22 to 24. But Peter begins by comparing the apostates that he's targeting to Balaam. Now look what he says in verse 15 of chapter 2, 2 Peter. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, these false teachers. They're apostates. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages, that's talking about money, the money he could get from unrighteousness. They loved, he loved the money he got from unrighteousness. So he's comparing these teachers to him. Balaam was an Old Testament psychic hired by Balak, the king of Moab. And he was hired, get this, to go curse the children of Israel on their way from Egypt to Canaan. Now they're making their way to the promised land. The children of Israel are on their journey. They've been delivered from Egypt. They're headed to the promised land. They're going through the wilderness. And Balak, the king of Moab, gets really uptight about the fact that, that everywhere they go, that they seem to be succeeding. And he wants them stopped. So he goes and finds this hireling, this Old Testament psychic named Balaam. He says, look, look, I know you have spiritual power. And I'm asking you, and I'm willing to pay you handsomely for it, I want you to curse the children of Israel that they are stopped by a curse. Peter begins by pointing out Balaam's immediate problem. His problem was stuff. He loved things, materialism. That's where his heart was. It says he loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam forsook the right way. He apparently had some knowledge of the true God because he prophesied four times even though he was supposed to prophesy negative, God came upon him and he prophesied positively amazing prophecies four times that were stunningly prophetic of the Messiah and all kinds of things about Israel. But in fact, he was a pagan soothsayer. So God can use a pagan soothsayer if he wants to. God, that is, he can make him say something he doesn't want to say. 
God revealed himself to this man Balaam on several occasions. When he was first invited to come to Moab as guest of the king, the king was going to wine him and dine him. God appeared to him and told him not to go. And then in, uh, told him why. He said, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Folks, you can't curse what God's blessed. You can't curse what God's blessed. It'll bounce back and hit you in the face. It'll boomerang on you. Throw a curse towards the blessed. And it comes back and hits you. You got Teflon on you. Teflon saints. If you're blessed, the person who tries to curse you is going to end up more cursed, as we're going to see. Now, not to be turned down, King Balak was very, very persistent. He sent a second delegation. Now, they're, they're really going after this guy. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. Now, mark this down. This was a test. This was only a test. God's going to see if he, because once God tells you no the first time, he's not like your parents. When God tells you no the first time, that's it. You can hang it up and go on. Because he's not going to change. No is no. Wrong is wrong. And you can't make wrong right. And I know, and we've all done it. Lord, are you sure you meant that? Won't you change your mind? Maybe you didn't hear me correctly. Maybe you haven't really seen my heart. No, he's seen it all. And he told him no. But here's Balaam. He's going to him a second. Well, Lord, here they are again. I can't help what they do. What am I to do? And he tested him. Well, Balaam rose up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. And immediately he's in trouble with God. Look at this. This time God gave him permission to go on the understanding that he would proclaim the message that God himself had given him. But... Here's when an amazing thing happened. Look, once he set out, God's anger was aroused because he went. What was God thinking? I already told you no. You shouldn't have needed to ask me again. So God got mad when he went. And the angel, capital A, of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. There's an angel standing in his path. He's just going along with his little donkey and thinking, uh, I guarantee you, of all the gold he might get from this. And suddenly an angel, if an angel has to be sent to stop you, and he was riding on his donkey, and he had two servants that were with him, and now the donkey, the donkey... Not the man. The burrow saw the angel of the Lord. If a donkey sees what you should see, huh, whoa, you in bad shape. If a donkey is discerning, now, and look how the Lord, the angel of the Lord was standing there. He had his drawn sword in his hand. This was serious. You're headed towards cursing a blessed people. These people are my people. And if you think I'm going to let you get to them without standing in your path with my sword drawn. The donkey 
turned aside out of the way and went into the field with Balaam on him. Now Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back on her. You know, I read this story, I, I hurt for the donkey. Because this donkey didn't do anything but discern and save this, this dude's life. Now watch. So a, a donkey was more discerning than Balaam, but it gets even worse. It says in the Bible, Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path. Now God is, is turning the screw. And he's applying and increasing the pressure. And this is what he will do with you and me if we get off the path. At first, he'll stand in your way. If you don't catch it, it will narrow on you. And your options will narrow. And God will hem you in. I'm, I promise you. And he's in a narrow path now between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. He can't turn this way or that way, and that's exactly the way you'll end up if you go against God. If you as a child of God get away from him, he'll hem you in. You have a wall here and a wall here, and what used to be a wide open field, now you are, now you are hedged in. Hosea talked about this. And he can't move. And so when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. She's leaning against this wall. His foot is trapped and it's crushed. So he beats the donkey again. Now his foot is crushed, but he still has zero discernment of what's actually taking place. He thinks he's just got a stubborn donkey. Don't we think that sometimes? You know, I read this, I read recently, one of the old uh, uh, church fathers, he wrote, I'm never any longer going to get angry at inanimate objects who had nothing to do with what made me angry? In other words, have you ever kicked a, a, a car tire? Or have you ever thrown a pan? Or have you ever hit a door? Have you ever hit an inanimate object and realized how insane you are when you do that? Because that didn't have anything to do with your problem. See, he doesn't understand that God is stopping him. But it gets even worse. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there's no way to turn to the right hand or the left. I want to reiterate, when a child of God walks away from God and you backslide and you drift and you get out there, the Lord will first stand in your path. He'll whisper. If you don't get it, he'll narrow your path and narrow your options and increase the pressure. If you don't get it, He'll get you where there's nowhere to turn. He'll hedge you in and hem you in. You won't be able to turn to the right or the left. You'll find yourself sitting in some empty, dry place. Think prodigal son, pigsty, nowhere to go, no other options, hemmed in, hedged in by God's grace. So now he can't turn. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. She said, I've had it. I'm laying down. You can, be, you can beat me all you want to. I'm laying down. And so Balaam's anger was so aroused, he struck the donkey with his staff this time, and this poor donkey is getting beat up. Now it's time for God to speak. Through the, have you ever had a donkey talk to you? Don't look at your spouse. Look up at me. Come on. Come on. I'm kidding. 
God can talk through whatever he wants to talk through. Now, catch, catch this, this man. The donkey, talk, if a donkey talks to me, I'm headed to the top floor somewhere. <laughs> but this donkey talked to him, and then the Lord, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now a donkey's talking to you. And you know what strikes me? Balaam said back. <laughs> you know, that's insanity. That is psychopathy. <laughs> Look what he said. Because you have abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand. I would kill you right now. He's not stopping to think, she just talked to me. <laughs> Balaam has essentially truthfully lost his mind. Rather than being stunned that a donkey is talking to him, he enters a conversation with her. And it goes on. So the donkey said back to Balaam, Am I not your donkey? <laughs> Boy, this is great. I can see my little dog. Am I not your dog? <laughs> you know, when you say, No, you can't have a treat. I can just say, Am I not your dog? <laughs> have I not been faithful all these years? <laughs> Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden? Ever since I became yours, to this day, he's saying, Master, I've been faithful to you. Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And Balaam talks back, no. You can see him under conviction, no. This is bizarre. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. That's a good thing. Open his eyes, and look what he saw. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. He saw it because the Lord opened his eyes and he bowed his face or his head and fell flat on his face. Mm. How blind we can be until God opens our eyes. I'm going to say it again. How blind we can be about all kinds of things. But when God opens your eyes, what a great moment that is. Now God speaks directly to Balaam. Okay, and he says, The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Now God is agreeing with the donkey. And he says, Behold, I've come out to stand against you, because your way is perverse before me. So I've stood against you. Your donkey had my word. I'm in agreement with the donkey. The donkey saw me. God's explaining now to Balaam what happened. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now. This is God talking. See, Balaam said, if I had a sword, I'd kill you, donkey. But God's now saying to Balaam, look, if, if not for that donkey, I'd be killing you. And I would have let her live because she didn't do anything. It's the sheer mercy of God that He blocks our path when our way has become perverse before Him. When He can see that we're headed to certain destruction because we're His child, God will block our path. He will hedge us in. He will take away our options. He will take us to a dry and a thirsty place. And He will speak to us there. And by the mercy of God, we don't go further than we would have because He stopped us. 
Peter finishes his discourse on Balaam, and here's where this whole thing leads. This is the, the message from Balaam. Look what it says, verse 16. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. All right? Now, the word madness, when it's talking about Balaam, means to be out of one's mind. Yet in spite of God's amazing intervention through the donkey, Balaam went out of his mind again. Now, how many of you would have turned and changed your ways after having a conversation with a donkey and realizing that an angel had made him do what he did and that God had sent an angel and by the mercy of God, you're not dead? Would you have turned? Most people would have, but not Balaam. He went out of his mind again. Though sobered, he was not sufficiently deterred to cancel the trip and go home. He kept going. Visions of bountiful bags of Moabite gold were dancing in his head. Riches had him. It's amazing what can get you and drive you. What a merciful and a great thing to be gotten by God and to be hooked on grace and hooked on the Spirit of God, hooked on the things of God. Because I tell you, look at this man. God's already told him, you're, a dead, you're as good as dead. I could have killed you, would have killed you. And yet he keeps going because he's thinking gold, gold, gold. Balaam's a prime example of apostates in the church who are very willing to deceive others with fanciful lies and doctrinal error in order to get their gullible listeners money. Send in your check, and as soon as we get it, your runaway child's coming home. I think sometimes we're dangerously close in the charismatic church world to selling indulgences again, to buying blessings. And we don't realize if you didn't have a red cent, God would still bless you. I think we're dangerously close to that kind of thinking. We've been trained by some people that you've got to give to get from God, but you don't. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. And there is a principle to giving for sure, but guess what? I had nothing when He saved me, and He blessed my socks off, and I didn't have a dime to give back to God. And that's a fact. Three times, three times, Balaam was invited to curse only to have God force him to bless. God had determined to bless Israel and settle her in the promised land, and nobody was going to curse her and stop her. Then what was the sinister sin of Balaam? What was the doctrine of Balaam that John talks about in Revelations 2, verse 14, that had gotten into one of the churches? You have put up with, he said, the doctrine of Balaam. What was the doctrine of Balaam? Here it is. He suggested to Balak that the women of Moab use their feminine powers of seduction to lure the men of Israel into worshiping Baal, the fertility god. If you can't beat them in war, seduce them. That's the doctrine of Balaam. It's sinister. It's diabolical. War is overt. Seduction is covert. You cannot conquer these people, my Lord King, Balaam wickedly advised. So corrupt them. Corrupt them. 
You can't slaughter them with the men of Moab, so seduce them with the women of Moab. Then God, when they go into Baalism and they go into immorality, God's going to have to judge them. And so God will do for you what you're asking me to do. He'll have to do it if his people go off into sin. The doctrine of Balaam was seduction. It was a devilish suggestion. And guess what? It worked. A large number of Israelite men abandoned their allegiance to God and willfully participated in sexual sin with foreign women. They were taken into their Baalism. Same thing happened to Solomon. Wisest man in the world, richest man in the world. And yet, what took him down? Not battling from without, but seduction from within. He was taken down by as many foreign wives who not only seduced him with sexual wiles, but with idolatry. And he ended up in an unbelievable place, Solomon, because of the doctrine of Balaam. Consequently, when they went off with these women and went into Baal worship, God's anger, just like Balaam had said, burned against his people because God must judge sin. Numbers 25 tells the sad story. If you want to read it, God sent a plague among the people for what they did. And as a result, 24,000 people died. And what finally happened to Balaam? Well, of course, he died under the avenging sword of Joshua's approaching armies. He died. He was killed fighting against God's people. You can't give that kind of advice against God's people and expect to be blessed. But it worked, and that was the sad thing. Now, John Phillips notes that, quote, his ghost, that is Balaam's ghost, now haunts the rest of God's word. The doctrine of Balaam. Doctrine of Balaam. And so here it is. Here's a warning for us today. Because that's who Peter's writing to the New Testament church. Corruption through seduction is one of the devil's favorite tools. If he knows he can't get you in a blatant, obvious trap, he'll come stealth-like through the back door, under cover of dark, with the doctrine of Balaam to sow into your life. And he'll try to destroy you through seduction, which brings corruption, which brings destruction every time. Be watchful for the doctrine of Balaam in your own life. Because the doctrine of Balaam is alive and well. It's the devil's favorite tactic with the people of God. We see the results of it all the time in our day. So, Peter is warning about this, and he moves on from this illustration to metaphorically describe the false teachers in 2.17. Let's do it quickly. Here's what he thinks about them. By the way, think about that doctrine of Balaam thing, because it comes at you and me, from a hundred different directions every day. And it comes in from our culture. It comes in through the computer, comes in through movies, comes in through books, magazines, television. It's everywhere. Trying to lure you away from your allegiance to God, compromise your convictions step by step, and then get out there to where you're worshiping an idol. You're, you're, you're sold out to something else. 
and it is corrupting your soul. And if you don't stop it, it'll destroy your soul. It's the doctrine of Balaam. Now, let's look at what he thinks about false teachers in 2.17. Wells without water. Wow. Anybody ever gone to a well without water? What a disappointment it is, right? They hold promise. Well, I haven't been to a well without water, but I have been to a drinking fountain without water. You ever gone to one, thirsty, punch that button and nothing comes out? Same idea. They hold promise of something good, these false teachers, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, you're going to get something, all the cults, all the false teachers. You're going to get something out of this. They claim to possess genuine water for the soul, but it never delivers. It's dry. <clears throat> there are wells of promise that don't deliver. Then there are clouds carried by a tempest. Like a Texas tornado, they leave ruin and destruction in their wake. If you've ever seen somebody destroyed by false teaching, it is a terrible, horrible sight to behold. That's why we get in here every week, and we teach the Scriptures, we teach Bible doctrine, we teach Bible stories, we teach you the Word of God, because I know what cult or false teaching can do to you. It'll corrupt you, it'll seduce you and corrupt you and destroy you and carry you away from God, your walk with God. It'll destroy it. And the only, the only solution to it is truth. And so they leave ruin and destruction in their wake. And then he tells us their doom. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Ionis, 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 ages upon ages, time without time. They're going to be in darkness. Their doom is endless darkness. This is how seriously God views those who corrupt His Word and lead gullible people into damnable heresy. I don't want to be in some people's shoes. I'm telling you, I do not. Uh, it's going to be such a ferocious judgment for some of these people. And in verse 18, Peter tells us what God thinks of their preaching. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness. Have you ever heard? Great words of emptiness. What a great description. They sound impressive, but their words are high-sounding nonsense. They are expert at blowing verbal bubbles. There's no genuine substance. Their words are like balloons with impressive bright colors, but hold nothing but hot air within. You're listening to endless vacuity. There is nothing to them. No content. And their words are beguiling. Peter says they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. They appeal to the senses, to the lusts of the flesh. And they lure away from the faith those who are on the verge of salvation. They, Jesus talked about that in the parable of the sower. The seed falls on the ground, and the devil plucks it away before they're able to get saved. That's who he's talking about here. Right when they're on the verge of salvation, here comes the false teachers. For instance, the Bible says that Felix trembled at the preaching of Paul, but he never came all the way in and got saved. King Agrippa was almost persuaded to become a Christian, but he never did. He was plucked away before he made the final step. It is the almost persuaded but not fully in people that these apostates prey on and lure away. The false teachers, says Peter, are stellar hypocrites. He says, they, while they promise them liberty, promise their listeners liberty, they themselves are slaves to corruption. So when somebody walks up to you with a drug and says, hey, man, you ever tried coke? You ever tried crack? You ever tried? 
and they say, it'll give you such peace. You need to look at them and go, you're a slave of corruption. Why should I listen to you? For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Who has overcome in your life? Who has, who has got your heart? What has got your heart? Whatever has it, that's what owns you. You can't give what you don't have, Peter points out, but though they claimed to hold the keys to freedom, they themselves were in utter bondage, the slaves of corruption. And Peter next warns their potential victims, and we close here, for if, and here's a warning, to the victims of false teachers, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. To begin to advance toward Jesus, to clean up your life and get near the things of God and then turn away before fully turning to Christ in faith is to end up in a worse state than at the start. For it would have been better for them, Peter says, not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And here's what happens. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mud. Now let me tell you what that means. The dog illustrates total degradation of appetite. A dog will eat anything. A dog will eat its own vomit. Get out of there. Get, get off of that. You ever done that in the back? You look out there in the backyard, they've thrown up, and now they're going back to it. Ooh, you're not coming back in the house for a week. And you're not licking me anymore. But that's what a dog is. A dog is what a dog does, right? <laughs> I got to tell you this quick, quick story. One time, Kathy and I got one of these little Shih Tzus. These little, pretty little Shih Tzus with the long hair. You get them all duded up and powdered up. You take, and we took this little dog to the vet, a she, and, and when we got her out, she had bows in her ears. She had a little bow in her hair, and all, everything was clean, and she looked so pretty and cute. We took her in the house, and, oh, look at the little Shih Tzu. Come here. When the door opened, boom, she's out. I couldn't find her. This is when we lived in the country. And I went for a hunt, and finally, here she comes. Where did she come from? Walking out of the creek, and the mud, and the dirt, and the slime. Happy as she could be. You know, you know why she did that? Because she's still a... And until you get saved, you're still a... That's right. And you're going to keep going back to stuff that is vomit-like until you get saved. The pig illustrates total disregard of appearance. The pig prefers the muck and the mire over the clean and the sanitized any day. So does the apostate. Now here's Peter's point. There's a huge difference between the backslider and the apostate. A backslider is genuinely saved. Though he drifts from the Lord, he's not happy in his worldly wanderings. Won't be, can't be. Eventually, the chastening of God will bring him home or take him home early. That's what will happen. Or the apostate 
has never been saved at all. Peter backslid. Judas was an apostate. Okay? So what's the message tonight? Avoid the doctrine of Balaam in your life. Don't allow yourself to be seduced into corruption of any kind by that teaching. And thank God that he'll stop you in your tracks when you've gone wrong, chasing you and bring you home. So let's stand up together, can we? Next week, look at next week, Peter scours the scoffers. That's a good one. Let's thank God for his mercy, can we? Lord, we just thank you right now for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that your love reaches even when we have lost our way and you're willing to stand in our path and block it. Speak to us, call us, convict us, bring us back home. Thank you, Lord, for wisdom and discernment on the doctrine of Balaam. And I pray that if anyone here tonight or listening by radio is in the midst of a tragic seduction into something they should not be in that is going to ruin their walk with God and corrupt them and eventually destroy them. As you open Balaam's eyes, open their eyes and deliver them. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight, can you?